Well, hello everyone. My name is Chris and I'm the Student Ministries Director here at Agora Bible Fellowship. Uh, we are so thankful that you have joined this online service that we have for you. Uh, and just to let you know that our heart is for everyone to be connected to a local body of believers, uh, a local church. And uh, this online service is used just uh, as a supplement if you're out of town, traveling, vacation, or for work, or if you're unable to attend on the weekend. A couple of things I want to remind you of. The first thing is that uh, you can text us your prayer request, your confidential prayer request at 97,097,000. And we love praying for you. Stephanie will respond right away. So you can go ahead and do that. Uh, the other thing is we have a lot going on every single week here at Agoro Bible Fellowship. And if you want any information about our various events, life groups, uh, ways to serve, uh, anything going on throughout the week, our website is the best place to start at agorabible.org and you can go there at any time and uh, you get all the information. Lastly, we are so thankful for your ongoing generosity and support. Uh, we cannot uh, be doing what we do uh, without your support, so we're so thankful for that. On our website, you can go to the Give tab and you can donate there and we just ask that you prayerfully consider uh, donating. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's go ahead and get into God's Word. Thank you. Well, greetings, church, and uh, thank you, Chris. Good to be together again in God's Word and uh, diving in to this next section and really every single section of this book. I feel like I'm like, well, the next section's got to be a little bit easier, a little bit lighter. And then I get to the next section, I'm like, nope, it just keeps on rolling with intense topics. Well, uh, just a, a fun thing before we get into this week, it's uh, enjoyable to reconnect with old friends. And this week, my wife and I had some chances to connect with some friends we really hadn't seen in a long uh, time. One uh, of those friends, his name is David Rausch. And I was reminded of a story that he had from quite a few years back. He was telling of uh, being at a, fr at a Friday's, one of those restaurants, and uh, taking time to excuse himself from the group that he was with and heading to the restroom. And in the restroom went into the stall at about the same time that another gentleman was going into the stall next to him. Well, while he's sitting there, he has at a moment where the guy starts asking him questions. He's like, hey, so how are you doing? And at first he decided he thought it'd be best to ignore that and so goes silent. But then the, the gentleman keeps asking additional questions. So it's like, hey, so what, what are you up to? And so finally David succumbs and starts kind of engaging. He's like, well, I'm just probably doing the same thing you are, just making light, trying to be real short answers with that. Ask, guy starts asking about uh, what he does, what, about, his, about his work, about his week. And, just, and so David's just trying as quick as possible to get out of that stall and get out of the awkward conversation. So he gets out almost the exact same time as the gentleman, only to discover, and you're probably guessing where this is going, Gemini holds up the phone and says, I wasn't talking to you. He was on the phone the entire time. And so David didn't realize he's having a conversation and not realizing that it wasn't with him. Now, most likely you as the listener have not had one of those interactions, but we've all had one of those conversations that you step into the middle of it and you're like, man, I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't know what the, the, who the participants are in the situation. I don't know the details. There's so much missing that it's hard for you to piece together the conversation and make sense out of the whole thing. Well, as I was thinking about this week's text, I'm like, this is that example. This is the example of a section of scripture that there's so many components 
missing to the conversation that upon first read, you're just left completely clueless. I know I was the first couple of times working through this section of scripture. I'm like, Lord, you've got you've to uh, unveil this to me. You have to reveal the direction that you're going with this. But the more I stayed in it, as God often is, he's faithful to start opening your eyes, realizing what the conversation was. And what you start to realize is that this is a conversation at its core dealing with our heart. But at the surface, it's a lot to do with conversations about man's role, women's role, what it looks like, that looks like in the church. And so it's a, it's a, a hotbed of hot topics, one might say, especially in a culture that's so infused with uh, just tension over some of these topics, especially uh, present day. Uh, d- definitely an area where Satan is trying to get a foothold within the, the body of Christ to cause a wedge, to cause disunity. And so this week I'm praying that God will use this time in the word to grow us, to mature us. So my ask of you is that first, there'd be a little bit of a (sighs) exhale as we engage this topic. There'd be a a commitment to not leave early, not to check out the first time you hear something or read something in this section that doesn't maybe settle well at first. And then for us to be open to continuing the conversation. If there's something that you're having trouble absorbing, something that doesn't maybe make sense, man, this is a a great time to email us at josh at agorabible.org. Just joking. Feel free to email email me. Let me pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this chance to gather around your word. And we believe that there's a purpose behind that that you shape us, that you mold us when we keep renewing our minds, making it new with, the, with content from your words, the, the way that you educate our conscience, the way that you lay a, a foundation for the way we view life, the way we see things. And we ask that you do that even in these moments now, that you'd speak to us, that we wouldn't approach this with a, a know-it-all, have-it-all figured out, but a teachable spirit, I ask. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, we're going to start in chapter 11 in verse 1, although you might make a case that verse 1 was attached to chapter 10, but either way, I think the same idea or theme works out uh, without a hitch. It says this, this is Paul speaking, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Or we'll just pause there just for a little brief explanation. First off, a reminder of where we're at. Last week, we talked about the idea of elevating others, putting others first above our own personal liberties, and with the end goal of glorifying God in every single thing that we do. Paul's not asking them to do things that he's not willing to do himself. That's why he starts. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's recognizing that he's living these things out himself and he wants them to follow his example. I think that's pretty awesome. Actually, Paul takes ownership of the example that he's setting. Sometimes we don't realize that we are setting an example. It's either a good one or bad one, but we are setting an example. Well, Paul's owning that idea and saying, I want you to follow me. The reason why that works and the reason why that's not strange for him to charge them to is because Paul was fully in. 
He wasn't halfway in. It wasn't a partially committed to Jesus Christ. He's fully in. So he charges them to follow his example. He starts, though, by commending them. You notice in verse 2, now I commend you. In other words, I encourage you because you've remembered me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I deliver them to, him, to them. So what's, what's he commending them for? For following the traditions that Paul had established for them. Here's the important thing to understand about the word tradition there. It's not just a man-made tradition, but it's an established God traditions that God has put in place. It's important for us to understand that with the body of Christ, with the way that the church works. You see, the church isn't a do-as-you-think-best. There's actually clear instruction on how it operates the best. And so he's giving them encouragement. Great job remembering me in everything. Basically what was happening is they were reflecting and the things that they did, they would pause and think back to what Paul had instructed them prior to that before moving forward. That's a, a great attribute. That's when you know you're having an influence on somebody. Those of us that are parents, you might realize when your kids are, are actually uh, finishing your sentences for you, that that's maybe a compliment. I'll give you an example. A lot of times when I'm dropping my kids off after I've given them a ride, I'll tell them, I'll say, hey, have a great time and make good choices. What I've noticed is they've started even before I can add that tagline on as I'm dropping them off. They're like, I know, I know, I know, make good choices. I'm like, well, at first it's annoying that they repeat me uh, or, or say what I'm going to say in advance, but then I start thinking, well, that's actually probably a good thing that they're remembering what has been said to them in the past. So Paul's starting, and he's starting them with a little bit of, you might say, sugar before the medicine, basically some uh, encouragement before he starts to address a number of issues related to them and their worship. You see, there was concern about how their worship, their public gatherings were playing out. There was issues with women overstepping boundaries. There was issues with misuse of the Lord's Supper. There was issues about misunderstandings about the spiritual gifts and how they play themselves out within the church. And so he's clarifying in each of those arenas, starting with the first. So he starts with the first, some encouragement. And then he doesn't, you're about to notice, he doesn't go the route of edicts. But instead, he patiently explains spiritual principles for them to apply to their current situation. Let me see if you catch that in this description. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not, not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol 
of authority on her head because of the angels. All right, remember my intro. As I was saying, there's sections of this that you read and you're like, man, I have no idea what they're talking about. But let me break it down for us because it's actually not as complicated as it might seem at first. First, he's talking about lines of authority, clear lines that God has established, authority and responsibility and what that looks like. He explains how it was intended to work. Really, if you think about it, establishing authority and kind of how that system works is critical in every single arena of our life, whether it's politics, whether it's a business, whether it's sports, whether it's academia, whether it's the military, and of course, within the home, there needs to be clearly defined leadership who's actually driving and directing the ship. Otherwise, there's complete chaos. You remember in school, anytime the, the, uh, the guest teacher was there, the substitute teacher, it would become pure pandemonium because there wasn't necessarily the leadership that was established. Similar here, he's saying, first, the way it's intended to work is man submits to Christ. And then he describes Christ submitting, Jesus Christ submitting to God, and then the wife submits to the husband. Every arena here mentioned has a clear-cut line of leadership. It's important to understand first how the leadership worked with God the Father and God the Son. In John 10.30, Jesus explains that he and the Father are one. So they're equal in character and in deity. Though equal, though, Jesus submits to the Father's direction. John 6.38 says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Basically, this is the idea. Jesus, although he was equal with God, chose to submit to God the Father. That wasn't something of someone elevated above somebody else. That was the way that was put in place, God's initial design. Similar for us, though for us, this idea as image bearers of Jesus Christ were in complete cooperation with Jesus as our Lord, as our leader, as a male. That's God's intention for me to fully submit, willingly submit to his authority. The part that we have trouble with, you see where it's coming here. The, the part that we have issue with is the headship of the husband over the wife. But it's intended to work with the same type of unity that God the Father works with God the Son. Galatians 3.28 explains that it's not a value issue. It says there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it's not a, an issue of one being elevated above the other, but instead it's something where leadership has put, put in place that one submits to the other. Now, this is intended to exist, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, an environment where the husband is loving the wife and serving the wife like Christ loved and served the church. That's the way this model is intended to work. But unfortunately, we've got gone so far from that. 
We've wandered so far from God's design as it relates to this, it all of a sudden, it, it pushes us back and causes the hair on our necks to stand up whenever the idea of submission is mentioned. But if you think about it, man, so many marriages run awry because there's not clarity in this arena. So many times when I spend times when I spend time with a couple, you're just like, man, if they just got this submission thing right, if we just got this area of of loving and serving them with like Christ served the church, man, if we just got that all headed in the right direction, so many of the issues of marriage could be easily resolved. So, God's intention with these boundaries is not to cause frustration, but instead it's to actually cause abundance. It's called uh, intended for us to flourish and achieve the things that he intends for within that relational design. I like this description by one pastor of how headship is supposed to work. It says, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership in the home and the divine calling for a wife to imitate Jesus in joyful submission to that servant leadership has nothing to do with man's dominance and it has nothing to do with a woman being subservient. Both in place instead is pointed towards God's design of a structure that he's put in place and if you think about it, it's a, it's a trust exercise. So that's one topic addressed in this section. Another you might ask about, or I would hope you'd ask about when you're reading this section is, what is up with this head covering part? What in the world are they talking about? How does that relate to me present day? Let me explain that to some degree. See, it was actually head covering or a veil was a cultural mandate that's really no longer in place in present-day United States. Although, if you think about it, you can still visit somewhere in the Middle East and see cultures that still use those traditions where they apply. So it's something from that time period, but not necessarily in our own culture here. But really, to simplify it, it was an ordinary, customary sign of fidelity and of modesty. So the head coverings were for fidelity, saying I'm committed to somebody already, and for modesty, saying I'm not going to show much skin. (laughs) So that's the the big idea of a veil in that day and age. So today, that's not something that we're dealing with or addressing, but today you can still, as you find yourself traveling the world, there's still a certain degree of cultural sensitivity realizing this, that like, hey, different cultures have different things. And you don't arrive with a new culture and say, I'm going to oppose that. I'm going to go against that. Instead, what Paul is putting in place is he's wanting to say, hey, these are the traditions of our culture. We're not choosing to oppose those. So what was happening is that was what was going on within the church. And here is the problem. The idea of taking off a veil and living without the veil over your face was only something in that culture of one of two reasons that you would do that. One, the one people group that would have short hair and have a veil uh, removed would be a prostitute. So that would be one group. 
The second group would be a group that was trying to oppose the system. If you think that, uh, th that the feminist movement started present day, you're misunderstanding things. So in that culture, again, another reason for that. And so you had people, you had ladies showing up with their liberty in Christ and saying, man, well, I'm done with this veil. And it was causing all kinds of uh, uproar with a stir within the church. So throwing off the head covering was an act of insubordination, which was really a deeper heart issue. It's really like we see present day, it was unfortunately even to be considered an attack on the sanctity of marriage. This would be like present day, like somebody that was saying, well, I'm not wearing this wedding ring anymore that signifies my commitment to a spouse. And so it was just kind of a, a thing for Paul to say, hey, let's stick with that. I don't mind that. It wasn't something that was, uh, uh, that was uh, egotistic of him. It wasn't him being, a, uh, it wasn't him being super uh, male-centered. Instead, he's, just, he's proposing, saying, some of these things that are established, they're not a bad thing. And so here, he's saying, in the, in the name of Christian liberty, don't throw away some of the cultural norms. Don't ignore that your cultural sensitivity because of your liberty, new liberty in Jesus Christ. You see, that really ties into the last section that we're just coming out of, that really you're wanting to elevate people above your own freedoms or liberty. So it would be, he also mentions it being a disgrace for a man to actually have a head covering. So again, a cultural thing. It's not things that we take from that culture and say, well, we need to make sure that we uh, never have a, a covering on our head if we're a male worshiper. It was the same idea what he's saying there. Why? Is because in the Corinthian mind, that's what women do. Kind of like a, a man wearing an Easter bonnet. Like it just doesn't, doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense in the context of the body of Christ. So for women... The, uh, being unveiled and with short uh, hair. Uh, he's saying, man, you may as well have, have shaved your head, explaining what an extreme measure that was that they were taking by not participating in that. So basically, he's pushing back and saying, this is not the area. This is not the time for us to dig in our heels no pun intended, ladies. Not our time to dig in and say, you know, I'm not going to partake in that. He's like that. He didn't see reason to go away from this particular cultural norm. And really, this, like any time that God asks us to stay within the boundaries that he's put in place, it's really, as I mentioned, a trust exercise. Uh, all different cultural issues of sexual, uh, sexuality, when we're brought back to God's plan and his design, it's a trust thing saying, I trust you, God, that you know best, and I'm going to trust you with the outcomes. It's the same thing that any man that's, that's trying to submit to the Lord's leadership in the, their life. You're saying, all right, God, I trust you. Anytime I sin, it's demonstrating my distrust. It's me demonstrating that I maybe think better than God. So the big idea here, either a man or a woman, not properly submitted to the headship to headship is out of place in the church and always a hindrance to the work of God. So he explains, verse 10, we're almost through this. 
Verse 10, the symbol, he describes what's, what he means by the symbol of authority on her head is again, going back to that same picture of the veil, kind of being the symbol of like a wedding ring present day. He's just saying that's not something that we need to walk away with. with basically saying, I don't mind that wives wear a wedding ring if you're trying to bring it to present day. All right. Well, I think this is, uh, we've made it through that tricky section uh, to some degree. It does mention one thing that I wanted to touch on before we move in on that I was wrestling through all week. It mentions this idea of it being demonstrated or viewed by angels. Man, I read so many different commentaries as potential explanations for what Paul's referring to. And I just concluded that I just don't think we have enough of the context to be able to understand exactly what he means. If in your study you have a great suggestion for that, again, feel free to send me an email with an overview of that. We'll continue in the section of Scripture, verse 11 where he's just now, so he's talking about this idea of staying with this cultural norm, not bucking the system in something that's not necessary to buck the system in. So he's saying then, he go, brings us back to our interdependence in verse 11. It says, nevertheless, so in, in spite of the fact that, hey, we wear head coverings and we don't wear head coverings, it's not a dishonor, it's not a big deal. It says, nevertheless, in the Lord, Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Now, what is he saying in this? He's reminding his audience of our inter interdependence on each other. There's no man apart from Adam that got here without a woman. Raise your hand if you never had a mom. Obviously, there would be no hands raised. There's no inferiority or there's no inequality implied between the man and the woman here. There's no distinction in worth. There's just a difference in roles. Both of them were a critical part or are a critical part of God's design. See, this is just as true present day as it was then. Within the body of Christ, they're saying, man, both are critical components of the church. Man, any church that you see where men are failing to rise to the occasion and use their gifts for the glory of God, to, to bring leadership within the church, you're just like, ah, oh, that church is really struggling. Any church, any church where women are not using their gifts and bringing leadership to the church, you're just like, oh man, I can't imagine this church without the women that help hold it all together. Both are critical and are, we're all interdependent. That's the beautiful thing that Paul is introducing. Now, in a, in a, uh, in a male-centric culture, this would have been crazy what Paul was saying, what he was suggesting. This would have caused people to read and reread this section. A lot of times when we read it, unfortunately, people come to the conclusion like, oh, well, Paul was such a male chauvinist. You're like, it couldn't be any farther from the truth. In fact, he was more of the great emancipator and protector of women by what's being said here. He's elevating the two both equally. They should be seen as both critical and both perfectly a part 
of God's design. He says, all things are from God. That's one of the things I wanted to point out. We don't ever have to feel ashamed for pointing people back to God's design, for his plan for a man and a woman. That's, that's not something we should be ashamed of or embarrassed to have that conversation, pointing it back to God's plan and his design. I remember having a, a conversation with a, a young man that was really working through sexual identity stuff and really orientation stuff, really having a conversation and trying to bring him back to God's plan and his design. And I remember him saying, just like, man, it really seems like you're trying to convince me of something. And you're like, well, I'm not really apologizing for that because God's plan is perfect. His design is exact. There's nothing as, 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 that we, we've wandered from that we're like, oh, now we're getting it way better from what God's plan is. No, his design is exactly the best way for us to navigate life here on this earth. Continue in the text. I like how he approaches this conversation. He says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that it is a man, if a man wears long hair, it is a dis disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right, so what is he doing here? I don't know if you've heard the expression before, give a man a fish and we'll feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime. I really think that's the idea or the premise of what's happening. Let me explain. What Paul is doing is Paul is asking them a question, saying, judge for yourself. In other words, he's saying he's, he's passing on the ability for them to come to their own conclusions about these matters based on biblical principles. He's saying, I'm not trying to force you to come to a conclusion. He wants them to have the ability to fish themselves. Because if we're not, if you're not realizing this, a lot of things that come across our paths in our life and culture and world, there's not a verse that maybe speaks specifically to that instance, but there's biblical principles that apply that you can say, all right, well, thinking of this current situation, we're in this, the, this scenario, well, our head coverings, are they, are they necessary? Is that, is that appropriate in this, in this culture? He's saying, well, think about what you already know. And he points to some things to help them think through this process. And at first you're just like, well, what in the world is he pointing to? Basically, he's pointing to observable parts of the culture of that day. Long hair on guys, would have been unusual, but it was considered an area of beauty for women. Basically, if we're honest with ourselves, in all human history, men have generally had shorter hair than women. Some exceptions, but definitely a normal human pattern. That doesn't mean that somebody, that a lady that's wearing shorter hair, that you're outside of God's design. That's not the point of what he's saying here. But he's saying that it was a visible expression and it was something that differentiated the sexes in that time period. So he's saying in the Jewish, in this culture, he's saying, is wearing a veil simply just an accent or uh, accents the pattern that's already in place 
with the long hair, something that's already in place. You see, in, in that time period, if a woman was caught, caught in adultery, one of the uh, consequences would her hair would be cut off, cut short. So it was very associated with beauty. So he's saying, listen, we already have that there's a natural covering that a woman has through hair. With man, it's less of a covering with his short hair. He's saying, even just looking at some of the, of the natural things, is this worth causing disunity within the body of Christ? Is this worth, is this something that's a cultural norm that you want to try to fight or oppose? I already pointed to that just a little bit ago. And that's what he, he's saying. He's saying, I hope you're not going to be argumentative about this, is basically what he's saying. If anyone is anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the other churches. So he's saying this idea that all God's churches see it in this particular direction as the Corinthian church, don't be the outlier. Don't be contentious for no reason. But at the same time, he's letting them come to their own conclusions. It's kind of a, a wrestling match that they're intended to have with this topic. And so often, that's what we're left to as a follower of Jesus Christ. We're left with biblical principles. We're left with the Holy Spirit as a helper. We're left with patterns that we see. There's traditions that have been put in place. And then we're left to navigate those things with the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of biblical principles. Man, my hope is that as a church, we're laying a foundation for this, that we're teaching every single person here how to fish, not just handing out fish. That's what Paul's intention was in this. We're continually to go back to God's design for a man and a woman. Consider cultural trends that are happening and for us to assess whether or not, hey, is that a cultural trend that we can embrace or are there cultural trends that we need to dig in our heels and say, you know what, we can't cross that line. We can't wander from God's design, from his plan. And there's so many different arenas that that would be applicable present day, whether it's in our teaching young, youngsters as they're growing up, their identities, whether it's uh, some of the confusion about sexual identity present day, biblical principles that obviously could be easily applied. My hope is, is that those are taking root and being a guide for us as we navigate the culture in which we've been placed. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this section of scripture. And at first read, it was really pretty a daunting. But when you really realize and allow it to sink in that it was just people that were trying to make sense out of a culture, which things to oppose, which things to embrace, which things to resist, which things to accommodate for the betterment of the, the, the people that they were trying to minister to. I thank you so much for the way that Paul brings them get back to your design. Man and a woman designed the, the structure of leadership, the man lovingly and as a servant modeling Jesus Christ, uh, leading the wife. And I, I thank you for some of those principles that you put in place to help us make sense out of relationships even present day. As we even make sense out of what ultimately we're called to is submitting to you and your leadership. 
As I mentioned earlier, God, I thank you that this is a trust exercise that we have to lean in and count on you. But here's the amazing thing, God, I recognize is that you have a perfect track record of faithfulness and can be trusted. We thank you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.